And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. Well, we are week three of 1 Corinthians 15. It's hard to believe how quickly this goes. Uh, we, uh, we have a total of five weeks, and, uh, and then it's Mother's Day. So this is a reminder to the guys, especially the husbands. It's Mother's Day coming up, so you better get ready. <laughs> so here we are in, at 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. If you have your Bibles, just turn there and you'll be able to follow along. And uh, today especially, it's important that you check the word out because there's a tricky verse that I'll be talking to you about in just a few moments. But let me just say this, that doctrine matters. And I recently heard a podcast where this, uh, I won't say the name of the organization, but they were going and questioning pastors at a conference and asking the pastors if doctrine which is more important, doctrine or the practice of the Christian life? And a vast majority of the people said that the most important thing was the practice of the Christian life that was more important than doctrine. Now I'm gonna show you today that that is a huge, huge mistake. Doctrine is critical because doctrine is what shapes our belief and it shapes and determines our behavior. So. What does the word doctrine mean? Well, it comes from the Latin doctrina, which means that which is taught. So here's the interesting thing. In 1382, Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, translated the Bible from Latin into English. And if you go through the Wycliffe Bible, you'll find that the word doctrine is used over 100 times. It's, it was a word that was very familiar hundreds of years ago. And then in 1611, there was another Bible that came out. Which Bible was that? The King James Version. Interestingly, in that translation, the word doctrine is used about half as many times. So maybe, maybe 50 times. And what we're seeing now in the newer translations of the scripture, the word doctrine is used even less. Now, it's, it, don't, don't think there's anything sinister going on. There's, I'm, I'm not going to be presenting you with a conspiracy theory today. What I'm trying to say is that the importance of doctrine to our faith and our behavior is critical. And that's really what Paul is discussing here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 to 34. Let me just share this. You've heard me talk about this so many times. Martin Luther, October the 31st, 1517. Some of you know what happens on October the 31st. Uh, some people celebrate Halloween, but here's something to, new to celebrate. 
and maybe this is something the youth can do. October the 31st was the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door in the church in Wittenberg, Germany. He nailed these theses to the door because as a, as a doctor of, of doctrine in the Catholic Church, he was pointing out the doctrinal errors of the church. Some of you in your history uh, will remember that the church was selling indulgences. In other words, you could pay money to get your loved ones out of purgatory. It sort of was the, was the fast track into heaven. And it was through that money, selling the indulgences, that the, that the Roman Catholic Church was able to build St. Peter's Cathedral in, in Rome. Martin Luther was saying, hold on a minute here. You are distorting scripture. You are playing loose with the word of God and you are making it say something it's not saying. And it's for this reason that he nailed these theses to the church door and what began is what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. Some of you, if you wonder what Protestant means, it comes from the word protest. They're protesting against Rome. Now, can I just say this? Martin Luther did not want to begin a Protestant Reformation. He just wanted the church to change. He wanted the church to be true to the word of God. Now, this is why it's so critical that you carry your Bible, you know your Bible, you know it, you mark it, you're familiar with it. One of the things that I have loved and appreciated so much about having a Bible that I use all the time is that I know where to find stuff. I may not know exactly the, the verse, but I know it's, on, it's, it's in, it's in uh, Corinthians, it's on the right side, it's at the top corner, it's the second paragraph. I remember, Pam, you're nodding, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know your Bible, you know where to find stuff. Well, here's what I want you to know today. Doctrine matters. Understanding your theology, understanding what you believe is absolutely critical. George Barna, just last year, just about six months ago, he came out with a very shocking report. He was doing a, a survey of evangelical Christians, and he says that what's happening now is what he would call a new post-Christian Reformation, which is a bad thing, it's not a good thing. He's saying what's happening now is, is that secular ideas, worldly philosophies now have invaded the church and that churches now are changing their belief system based on what the world is telling them to believe. We're seeing that happening all the time, and I'm not gonna get into it right now, but what I will say is this, I believe that God wants me to do another doctrines class. How many have in the past come to our doctrines classes? It's been some time, we're gonna do it again, because it's absolutely critical. Did you know that um, 52% of people do not, 52% of evangelicals do not believe in objective moral truth. What does that mean? Well, basically it means that the Bible, they believe that the Bible is, is errant and is not necessarily trustworthy in its content. Now, George Barna says, this is a radical and critical departure from the traditional teachings of evangelical churches. We have traditionally said that the Bible is in, inerrant, without error, and that it is utterly sufficient for all that we need to live a life that pleases the Lord. The word of God is a revelation of the Lord. This new, this new idea says 
Well, that's not necessarily true. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. He's a pastor in the little, uh, in the place of a little island of Crete. And Paul says, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so as to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. It's critical. This is the job of a pastor, and this is what Paul is telling Titus. This is what Paul told Timothy. We need to be sure that we are accurately communicating the doctrines that's been handed down to us from the apostles from Christ. Let me just give you a few more shocking statistics. 75% of evangelicals believe that people are basically good instead of basically sinful. That's shocking. We believe in the idea or the concept, the teaching of original sin, but 75% of people believe that people are basically good. That's not the teaching of historical Christianity. 43% believe that Jesus sinned during his time on earth. Is that shocking to anybody? If Jesus sinned, then... His death on the cross was absolutely useless, never mind the resurrection. 58% believe that the Holy Spirit is merely a symbol rather than a person. A majority of the evangelicals do not believe it is important to follow the Christian faith exclusively. In other words, you can be a Christian and you can be a Buddhist at the same time. You think that's ridiculous? I could tell you stories. I used to go to pray at St. Benedict's Monastery. It's a Catholic monastery out near Middle Church. I don't go there anymore. And one of the main reasons is because they host Buddhist retreats. They are borrowing from Buddhism in their meditation. Utterly pagan. 62% said that having some faith of any kind was better than having none at all. So in other words, it didn't matter what kind of faith you have. If you have a little, that's good enough. If you start exploring this and take it to its logical conclusion, you recognize how utterly ridiculous it is. 44% of evangelicals believe the Bible's teaching on abortion is ambiguous. It's not clear. I can tell you it is clear. do not believe that human life is sacred, that it can be snuffed out at any time. One of the things I do appreciate about about the Pope, two popes back, is that rather than give up, he continued, he persevered even though he had severe Parkinson's. He said, I am going to serve God in my suffering. I appreciated that. He appreciated the value of the human life, it was sacred. 34% do not believe marriage is between one man and one woman. Again, utterly shocking. 43% do not believe that God has a unified purpose for all people. And 50% do not confess their sins daily or worship God daily or pursue God's will for their lives on a daily basis. Folks, this is what's happening right now in North America and in other first world countries. So here's, here's the thing, in case anybody's shocked and thinking, oh no, the sky's gonna fall, it's the end of the world. Well, it might be the end of the world, it sure seems like it to me. But I'm gonna tell you, there's nothing new under the sun. The Apostle Paul was facing the same sort of issues and problems that we're facing today. And it's for this reason that we find 1 Corinthians 15. It's the doctrine of the resurrection. 
Paul wants us to be clear about this. First of all, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But the real point of 1 Corinthians 15 is that you and I are going to be resurrected from the dead. And the Corinthians somehow came to the conclusion, these Christians in Corinth, they came to the conclusion that, that we would not be resurrected from the dead. So we've discussed that already. We answered a number of questions last week. The week before that, we, we proved to you that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. He was resurrected. So here today, we want to show you how the doctrine of the resurrection will influence you and how you live your life. It will shape your behavior so that because of the resurrection, you will be born again. It'll shape your behavior so that you will serve God. And finally, as Paul shows us, the resurrection will motivate you to submit to the sanctification that the Spirit of God wants to do in every believer. So let's take a look at these really quickly. First of all, this, the resurrection motivates us to be saved. Well, before I go any further, I'm gonna just tell you what happened last week. As soon as the service was done, we were driving home, or driving up, we are going, going for uh, lunch actually, and Gloria says, okay, Alan, something you gotta tell me. I said, related to the message? She says, no related to the message of next week, which is today. She said, I was reading in my Bible, I read past uh, verse 28, because we went up to verse 28 last week. She said, I read verse 29, I said, oh no. And she said, what on earth is that about? And she peppered me with the questions on our way to lunch, and I told her she would have to wait till today. I said, you have to wait till next Sunday, so don't miss church, and here she she's not here. I don't know where she is. <laughs> I guess she'll come the second service. She better be. <laughs> so here's the verse that absolutely threw uh, glory off. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? How many knew that verse was in the Bible and how many were looking at that and, and saying, ah, what is this? Some of you, if you know the Mormon theology, you know that the Mormons do this. In fact, uh, if you go uh, on the internet, you can find the Duncalf family tree. It goes right back to 1630, and you can find all my relatives, all my great-grandfathers, and a lot of this information was gathered and put together by the Mormons, and I'll tell you why. It's a sacred thing to the Mormons because they believe that you can be baptized for your dead relatives so that if you're baptized for them, that somehow they will find salvation and they'll make it into heaven. So as, as much as I um, appreciate the Mormons gathering information on my family tree, and it didn't cost me a thing, they're absolutely and utterly wrong even though it seems that that's what this verse is saying. So I'm gonna just quickly bring up the speed on this. There are over 200 different interpretations of this scripture. I haven't had the opportunity to check all 200 of them out, but I have studied a number of them. And I'm gonna tell you first and foremost, so you don't panic, Paul here is not contradicting what he has said in virtually every other letter he wrote. We know that the only way that you can be saved is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. The only way that you can be made right with God, the theological term, Nick, is 
justification. The only way that you can be justified is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can be saved. And you say, well, pastor, what about good works? And by the way, that is something that evangelicals, another problem that evangelicals have. Many now believe that good works will get you into heaven. That is, that is totally the opposite to the definition of an evangelical. Good works are not what get you into heaven. Being baptized or baptizing yourself on behalf of your relatives, that does not get them into heaven. Paul makes it very clear to us over and over and over again, the only way that we are justified, that is being made right with God, or born again, or saved, or converted, whatever term you want to use, the only way that you can be born again is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And then you say, well, what about good works? Does that mean I can live like hell? Absolutely not. The evidence that you're converted or born again is that now you do good works. You want to do good things. You, you want to serve. You want to make a difference in this world. So Paul is not saying that you can get your relatives saved by being baptized on their behalf. How utterly ridiculous. What is he saying? Well, I'm going to just... I'm gonna cut through the 200 interpretations and share with you the one that seems to be the most popular and the one that I personally agree with. Many individuals in the early church were influenced by the testimony of other believers who were either martyred or had recently died. And so this is what, this is the, the way that most evangelical interpreters of scripture uh, would interpret this verse. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized because of the testimony of those who have died before? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? So this is a loose, uh, sort of my own loose uh, interpretation of that passage of scripture. Clearly, clearly, Paul is talking about resurrection. And he is talking about the fact that what's the point in becoming a Christian if there is no resurrection? The Apostle Paul, as some of you may know, in Acts chapter 7, was there when Stephen was stoned to death. The writer of Acts just writes it so, so beautifully. You can read about it yourself in Acts 7. Because of his testimony, because of his love for Christ, because he would not back down from his commitment to Jesus Christ, he was stoned to death. And it was Saul who was Saul who became or Paul. It was Saul who was looking on. Saul saw all of this. And some believe that, in fact, it was Stephen's testimony that that clinched the deal. So that when Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He was ready to embrace it because of Stephen's testimony. Listen, one of the reasons I became a Christian is because of the fact that my grandparents were Christians and my great-grandmother was a believer. And some of you here are here today because of various family members who were converted. Some of you are third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation Christian because 
of the life and the testimony of those who went before you. So this is what Paul's saying. The resurrection motivates us, drives us to surrender our lives to Christ. Because of what has happened before us, because of who has gone before us. One of the, there's a beautiful, beautiful picture at the end of Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim has now arrived. He's at the end of his journey, and he gets there, and he's taking off his armor. He no longer needs this armor. He is home safe. But he's not just taking off that armor alone. He's surrounded by the saints who have gone before the saints who have, have died before him and they're helping him take his armor off. Barry, when you get to heaven, I, your mom and dad will be there helping you take your armor off because you won't need it anymore because that is our blessed hope. This is what we have to look forward to. Think of Trish, Paul's, when she ri- arrives home at heaven to, to be with the Lord She's also going to be with her husband, and and I can just see Ted helping her take the armor off. The battle's done. It's all over. She is safe with Jesus. I want to share with you another reason that the resurrection motivates, is it motivates us to serve, to serve God. You know that 150 years ago, or about 150 years after the Reformation, the Protestants faced another great doctrinal crisis. And there was a great philosophical upheaval in in the Western intellectual world. Some of you will know what it is. It's called the Enlightenment. Has anybody ever heard of the Enlightenment? And so what was happening is that these intellectuals who really thought they were very clever, they decided that instead of beginning with God and his word, and this is what I always... I always say, don't begin with your experience, begin with God. Don't begin with what you think or what you heard somebody else think or what you heard that teacher say or that philosopher say. This is one of the reasons I will not listen to a TED talk unless I have made sure I've done my devotions. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous to have your mind polluted by ideas that may be contrary to scripture. We, we, we like to be clever. We like to try, to try to bring it together, try to find a way to tie it together. And I'm saying, let's stop being clever. This is what happened in the 1700s. They thought they were going to be clever. They were going to begin with their ideas, with their experiences, and they were going to reason apart from God's revelation, which is his word. Paul tells us clearly that The word of God has got to be the absolute standard. And we said that. There's a lot of believers, a lot of Christians today that don't believe that. But this is historical Christianity. We believe that the word of God is inerrant and is sufficient to tell us everything we need to know, even when we don't necessarily understand it, even when our experiences and our perceptions seem to contradict what the Word of God says. How many know today that when it comes to understanding God and understanding the truth, you do not begin with your own experience? It's dangerous. You're going to fall into error. This is how cults begin. 
And I'm going to tell you, there aren't just a few cults. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cults. And there have been thousands upon thousands of cults. Why? Because people began with their own ideas or with the ideas of people who considered themselves wise. This movement called the Enlightenment, it laid siege to the reliability of Scripture as God's word. And watch this, and this is where it's so critical. And it laid siege to the Christian faith and the Christian life. Paul tells us that the resurrection is the basis for his Christian life and the way he lives it. And in his case, we know that he was a full-time evangelist, a full-time missionary. He was serving. Listen how he describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, 30 to 32. He says, why are we in danger every hour? Every hour? I die every day. Why do I, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And he did. This guy, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was whipped 40 times. And a lot of times, people who got whipped 40 times by, by the Romans, that you didn't survive that, you died. But he, did, he was whipped more than once. He says, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Why bother going to Burundi? Why bother giving money uh, to, to Burundi when you could go on a trip to Disneyland? Why give generously to the work of God when you could be building yourself another house, investing it, doing all kinds of great and wonderful things? If there's no resurrection, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What's the point? Why do you spend your time giving and sharing, driving over to the church, doing whatever needs to be done. Man, there's so much work being done around here by volunteers, and we could not afford to get done the things that we get done. So thankful for Dennis Barrett, who put up all these baffles with his team. Incredible. Why bother doing it, Dennis, if there's no resurrection? Don't bother spending your time working here. Go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die. But because we know there's a resurrection, it determines how we live now. What we do now echoes in eternity. And so we as Christians, we live our lives knowing that someday we're going to stand before Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I stand before Christ, what I want to hear him say is, well done, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. The resurrection motivates us to serve and to not give up. There's some people I've heard, I've heard say, you know, I'm getting old now. It's time for the younger generation to serve. Have you heard that? And then I've heard the younger generation say, you know, I'm busy with my family right now. I've got to work. But when I retire, that's when I'll get involved. So you, the, the thing is, is that you never get involved. Because when you're young, you're waiting till you retire. When you retire, you've got to let the young people do it. But no, there is a resurrection. And someday you're going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ. Have you ever heard of that? It's not the great white throne judgment. It's the, it's the judgment of Christ where he is going to judge what you do here on this earth. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection, don't worry about the judgment. Don't worry about anything. Go have a good time. As soon as that money comes in, spend it on yourself. Have a blast. 
As a six-year-old boy, I watched my Uncle Jack and my Aunt Anne with their, uh, with their two kids at that time. I watched them go to the mission field, went, going to Africa. Now, going to Africa when I was six, like, we're talking now over 50 years ago. It's not like traveling today where, you know, you can get a pretty decent ticket, get on a plane, go back and forth. And that's in Sergio. I think they come back and forth from Canada like once a year. Back then, man, you go to the mission field, you're gone for five years and sometimes longer. And my, I, I, I watched my grandma. I was only about six years old. I, I got to get the, the times right, but I was like six years old or seven, something like that. And it finally came time where it was time for them to board. And I watched his mother, my grandmother, begin to, to cry and, and, and hug her. And hug her son. It had such a massive influence on me. Why would, this, why would this man take his family away from grandma and go to a land like Africa? Why would he do it? There's only one reason. Because of the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> and then I watched my grandmother weep when word came to us that Uncle Jack developed back cancer in Africa. And he came home and he died. <laughs> and then the day came and I went to grandpa. Grandma said, I'm going to Greece as a missionary. And I watched her cry again. <laughs> she said, why do you have to go to those crazy Grecians anyway? <laughs> It's because of the resurrection. Because someday I'm standing before Jesus. I'm going to give an account. Did I do the thing that Jesus called me to do? Did I obey him? Did I do his will? And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. There's no resurrection. Have a good time. Don't bother with those Africans, those Grecians. Don't bother with those South Americans. Don't bother with the lost. Focus on yourself. Well, there's one more thing that the resurrection motivates us to do, and that is to submit to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not easy to submit to the sanctifying work of God. What does that mean, the sanctification or the sanctifying work of God? The Spirit of God is at work making us holy. That's where the word sanctified comes from. That, the root of that is to be made holy. He's making us holy. He's making us like Christ. Now, if there's no resurrection, there's no point in knocking yourself out. Just relax. Go smoke pot whenever you want. Go get drunk once in a while. Spend your money on yourself. Live like hell. Gossip as much as you want. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. Tell white lies. Tell any kind of lies. Cheat when you want. You don't have to worry about being honest on your income tax return. You don't need to be honest about anything. But when you understand that there is a resurrection, that we will stand before God someday, it changes the way you and I live. In 1835, some people consider this a turning point in the history 
of the Christian faith. There was a, a leader, he was one of many actually, his name is David Friedrich Strauss. He determined that, quote, the miraculous events of the gospels never happened. And the gospel accounts of them are the result of a long process of legend and religious imagination. Somehow, and I don't know how we got here, but somehow Strauss did not see that if the fact of the resurrection was not true, then Christianity was in fact null and void. And American churches, this is all happening in Germany, American scholars and doctors of religion, they didn't want to be left out of the latest religious trend. And so what they did is they too got caught up in this new approach to the scripture. Sometimes it's called demythologizing the scripture. And what happened is that they adopted this anti-miraculous belief. In other words, Jesus didn't do any miracles, that Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, so on and so forth. Well, what happened then is churches began to die. And not only that, but, but, but denominations began to die. And in fact, if you do some research, you will be shocked at how churches around, uh, throughout North America are dying at, a, at an incredible rate. I just saw an article from the CBC that said, over the next 10 years, 9,000 churches will be closed in Canada. 9,000 churches will be closed in Canada. United Church is one of those liberal churches that got caught up in a new approach to Scripture. They didn't want to submit to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. I'm not saying that's the case with all United Churches, but I'm going to tell you that that is the trend with almost all of them. We're seeing uh, at least one or two churches closing up every week. I think someone said up to 10 churches in Canada are, are being closed up every week. There's a reason why these churches are closing. Because once you, once you reject the, the deity of Jesus Christ and you reject his miracles and you reject the resurrection, you've got, you've got nothing. You're left with nothing. You're left with air. But Paul says there's a resurrection and therefore... It's gonna change the way that I live my life. I will submit to the sanctifying work of God. And it's for this reason, Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, look, there's nothing new under the same. What we're seeing happening today was happening even in Paul's day in the city of Corinth. Some people are going to church their whole life, no idea who God is. They, can't, they cannot in any way articulate what their faith is and what the truth is. And it's, again, for this reason, I need to have another doctrines class. In fact, I am been talking to, to Pastor Joel and to Pastor Andrew about possibly doing a catechism. Some of you, how many have heard of catechism? And anybody gone to catechism as a child? We, we need to do this again so that you are clear about what it is that you believe. Because remember what we said at the beginning? Doctrine shapes your beliefs and it shapes your behavior. And this is what Paul is saying. You hang around people with, who, who are uh, corrupted 
People of bad character, you're going to become like them. If you're on somebody who's swearing all the time, just a matter of time, you'll start swearing yourself. You hang around people that gossip, and just a matter of time, you'll start gossiping yourself. You hang around people who are drinking, you'll be drinking yourself. It's just, the, it's just the way it is. We become like the people we hang out with. And this is exactly what Paul says. Don't be deceived. Bad, bad company ruins good morals. And it's for this reason, it's critical that the messages, the sermons you hear on a regular basis are gospel, gospel-centered, scriptural. Some people listen to all kinds of, of, of videos, all kinds of speakers, all kinds of ideas and philosophies. I told you I quit listening to TED Talks. I was just fed up with that anti-Christian bias, anti-church bias, anti-truth bias. And we're seeing what's happening in North America now. I have watched close friends of mine fall under the spell of these new ideas, these, these so-called new and advanced ideas. But there's nothing new under the sun. This has been happening throughout the course of history. George Barna, in his study of what's happening with evangelicals, he discovered that at least 28%, almost a third of the church, is attended by people who are not born again. I had someone say to me recently, one of the things that really grated on me when I first came to this church is that you kept asking people, are you really converted? It sounds like an arrogant thing to say, isn't it? It just sounds like a terrible thing. How dare you? How dare you judge me? I'm not judging you. I'm asking you a question. Are you born again? Are you converted? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Do you follow Christ? Have you, are you holding firm to the doctrines that are going to guarantee you eternal life? You see why now you need to understand the doctrine of the resurrection because it shapes the way you live. It leads you to Christ. It gives you the impetus, the strength to go on serving even though you feel tired. I remember my grandmother said, I'd rather, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Has anybody ever heard that? She'd rather just sitting there and rusting. She said she'd rather burn out serving God. I love that. I, I think there probably would be others that would disagree with me on that one, but that's why we serve. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He's serving. He's risking his life every day. Because there's a resurrection, he's going to stand before Jesus someday. He's surrendering to the work of the sanctifying uh, spirit of God so that he will become like Jesus. He is careful not to spend time fellowshipping with those who do not believe as he believes. Some of you know that yesterday was the funeral for Prince Philip. Gloria had an appointment, but she was sure to watch it some of you know that Gloria loves the monarchy. She loves to know about it. And so I'm caught up in this as well. At least I can hide behind her and pretend that I don't care. But he was 99 years old, just a couple months away from his 100th birthday. Do you know what really shocked me? It was the number of times people kept saying, oh, well, he was 99. He'd lived long enough. I wonder if that's how Queen Elizabeth would feel. 
Would she be saying, oh, well, the old codger, he's 99. It's about time he dropped dead. Of course not. It's never, it's never a good time to die. I'm sure the queen was thinking, if only he could have lived a little longer. If only he could have stayed at my side and helped me do the job that I've been called to do. He asked the question, what is the worst thing that can happen to us in this life? The worst thing. For some of you, it would be hearing news that you're, you're going to die. You're going to die young. You're not going to live a long life. Or worse, that your husband or your wife is going to die or one of your children is going to die. This, this is a shocking thing indeed. And we've experienced it in our family. And some of you have experienced it in your family. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Folks, if, if this is all there is, and then we die, to me, it's the most cruel, cruel hoax ever foisted on human beings. But death is not the end of the story. Death is not the end of the story. Jesus was preaching, busy preaching. And his friends, Mary and Martha, said, your friend. This is how they addressed Jesus. Your friend, Lazarus, that is their brother. They don't say our, my, our brother, but your friend, Lazarus, is, is dying. Please come, because we know that you can do a miracle and you can heal him. And Jesus knew this. He knew this was going to happen. How many know that Jesus is never taken by surprise? God's not taken by surprise. He knows what's going to happen. Come, come immediately. And Jesus doesn't. And it would seem that Jesus doesn't care. Have you ever thought that? Jesus doesn't care? I want you to know Jesus does care. But there's something that's more important than Lazarus being healed. And that is that God is glorified in our lives. This is a core tenet of our faith. This is the, the first doctrine that you and I need to learn. The chief end of man is to enjoy God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jesus wanted the Father to be glorified, and so he didn't come right away. He did come but not right away. Jesus waited until Lazarus died. That doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem consistent with what I've learned in my Pentecostal charismatic church, but it's what God wanted. He, Jesus wanted to glorify the Father. Jesus arrived and Mary and, uh, Mary and Martha said, well, you're too late. Is Jesus ever too late? Is he ever too late? He's never late. He doesn't get there when you want him to, but he's never late. He's always there at the right moment. And Jesus wept. It says he, Lazarus is his friend. His friend died. He wept over that. And, and Martha said, you know, Jesus, if you'd gotten here in time, he wouldn't have died. And here's, 
Here's the words that Jesus said to her, and I want to close with this. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this? I'm not asking Martha, I'm asking you. Do you believe this? Death is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the real story. Eternity with our God, serving and worshiping, fellowshipping forever and ever. The resurrection changes our beliefs and it changes our behavior. I pray to God that it will change yours. From this day forward, that you will consider your service to the king and his sanctifying work in your life. You'll consider it an issue of eternal significance. Let's pray. Let's stand with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, O God, for the great hope that's ours that someday we will stand before the Lord. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And because we know there is a resurrection, Father, we commit ourselves to serving you, to giving from what we have. We, we want to just lay our lives before you. Everything we have, we want to lay it before you. We want to ask, oh God, that you would use it for your glory and honor. And because there's a resurrection, Father, we pray, transform us sanctify us, make us like Jesus. And we thank you, O oh God, that your spirit is at work in us now. Thank you, O oh God, for those Christians who went before us, who have inspired us, and who have motivated us to surrender our lives to Christ. God, may we be the kind of people that will inspire our children, our grandchildren, our friends and family, to give their lives to Jesus as well. And we pray it for Christ's sake. And everyone said it with me? Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. 